you know, it's just one of those things that uh, that is a, a moment in their summer that they are never going to forget for the rest of their lives. And, and I, I hope you had a good summer, uh, a summer with some memorable moments. But uh, this morning, we're starting a new series that isn't just about having a good summer. It's really about having a good life. And it's, in fact, a, an invitation to the good life, uh, more than just a short season of, of, of adventure and fun, but a lifetime of living well. And the passage that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks may not be a passage that you would necessarily expect. In fact, it may seem actually counterintuitive. It's actually one of the most famous parts of the Bible, and not just famous in the Bible, but famous in all of world literature, because the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at is found in the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, and it's typically referred to as uh, the Ten Commandments. In fact, I kind of feel like I need some vocal effects. The Ten Commandments. I think everybody probably knows something about the Ten Commandments. I mean, even if you've never watched the classic movie by Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, they really are one of the cultural icons of Western society. And most people would probably say that the Ten Commandments are pretty much a good idea. I mean, at least the ones you can remember, right? Nobody can remember all the Ten Commandments, but most of us can remember some of them. We can remember the short ones, the thou shalt nots, right? Uh, What what are some of them? Thou shalt not kill. Did, Did somebody say that, right? That's what everybody shouted in the first sentence or the first service this morning. Is like, obviously, that was the most, one, most important one on their mind. <laughs> thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Don't lie. And bonus points if you remember the one about coveting or, you know, the one about honoring your, your parents. But, but those are just, you know, some of the, the, the things that, whether you believe in God or believe in the Bible, much of the popular definition of what it means to be a good person is reflected in those ancient words. I mean, how do you know if you're a good person? Well, have you killed anybody recently? You know, if you haven't, you're, you're, you know, you might be a good person. Do you steal? You know, that, that McDonald's caper, they, they didn't really steal anything. Well, maybe they... They stole some wall space. I don't know. The crazy thing is too, that, that nobody even noticed that they put this big poster up. Uh, crazy story. But uh, do you steal? Well, you know, if you don't, maybe you're a good person. Do you lie? I mean, not just the little white lies like pretending you're a McDonald's interior designer. Do you commit adultery? Well, you know, then you're probably... A good person. At least that's the way that most of us think about the Ten Commandments. They're a measuring stick for goodness, a measuring stick for morality. But what if that's not what the Ten Commandments are all about? In fact, if that's your understanding of the Ten Commands, I really think that you've missed their intent and their purpose. Now, don't get me wrong. The Ten Commandments given by Moses and made famous by Jesus are unquestionably the most renowned set of ethical statements in history. In fact, the influence that they've had in our world, especially Western society, is remarkable. 
Even if you're not a religious person or a spiritual person, your general understanding of right and wrong, your general understanding of what you should do and shouldn't do has probably been shaped in some way and can be summed up at least in part by God's big 10, the ultimate top 10 list. But what if the 10 commandments are more than just a bunch of rules that good people try to keep? Or to say it another way, are rules that we should keep so that we can be good people? What if their primary purpose was intended to be so much more than just a measuring stick for morality or goodness? Let me show you what I mean. How do the Ten Commandments start? When we think about how they start, we usually jump right in to the first commandment that starts in Exodus verse, uh, 20, verse 3. And what's that first one? You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Now, that may be the first commandment, and we actually are going to take a look at that next week. We're going to dive into what that really talking about, but that's not where the Ten Commandments really start. If you want to understand the Ten Commandments, in fact, if you really want to grasp what they're all about, I think you need to back up a couple of verses. And in fact, if you don't, you miss everything. If you miss verse two, you miss everything. Let's back up. Let's see what it says. Verse one, it says, and God spoke all these words. So, so we know that these words come directly from God. And then verse two says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And that's where we need to start. When you start looking at the Ten Commandments, that verse there is kind of the, the preface or the preamble to everything that comes after it. It provides context that we absolutely need to have and understand if we're going to learn what the Ten Commandments are really all about. So if you've got that in your head, that verse 2 what do we then learn about the Ten Commandments? Well, if you start with that preamble in mind, I think what we learn is, number one, is that God's commandments are really about freedom, not slavery. God's commands are about freedom, not slavery. And you know what? That might be kind of counterintuitive. Because we often think, well, the commandments are thou shalt not. Don't do this. It sounds restrictive. Well, what we need to understand is that the Ten Commandments are not just this random top ten list found in an obscure part of the Bible. Uh, they're part of a bigger story. And you need to understand the bigger story if you're going to understand what the Ten Commandments are all about. So, the book of Exodus is the second book in a five-volume series that was written by a guy named Moses. So Exodus is the second book. What's the first book? It's the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. And how does the book of Genesis start? What's the story? It's the story of creation. In fact, the Bible starts with this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? That is a radical, 
radical, mind-blowing theological statement, and we're going to be talking about more, uh, more about that in the next few weeks. But this understanding that, that God created the world is, is how the book starts. And then the rest of the, that first chapter uh, kind of unpacks the story of creation. And the word that just keeps coming up is God creates uh, is what? God says, he saw what he has made and it was, it was good. So creation was this place of perfect goodness. What the Hebrews would call shalom. The fullness and the goodness and, and, and the, the, the peace of God. Well, you keep reading through Genesis and what happened? Well, we find the story of Adam and Eve and, and how mankind rejected God's authority and then how creation begins to fall apart. Because the effects of sin are unleashed on the planet and the effects of sin are unleashed in people and everything just kind of starts unraveling. We lose our close relationship with God. Our relationship with people is damaged. In fact, you read a little bit further and you find the story of the first murder and there's strife. And everything from our bodies to the planet itself starts to fall apart. I mean, there's thorns and there's thistles, and there's tsunamis, and there's, there's all kinds of stuff that, that happens. There's, there's predation. In fact, you know, I found out something this, this summer that I didn't know. Do you know what the most dangerous animal in the world is? The mosquito. The mosquito kills more people than any other thing on the planet. You know, and, and, and so, so this good earth that God created just started to unravel, but that's not the main thread of the story. The, the, the main thread of the story is that in spite of this, God didn't abandon his creation. God didn't walk away. And you keep reading through Genesis, and eventually you come to this guy called Abram and how God comes to Abram and says, listen, I'm going to work my plan of salvation through you. He says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And Abraham's descendants become known as the children of Israel. And the book of Genesis ends on a high note with a story of how one of Abraham's great grandkids goes down to Egypt and actually saves the then known world and his family from starvation and becomes second in command. His name is Joseph. It's an amazing story. I just told you the story of Genesis in, in about two minutes. Isn't that amazing? Well, you get into the second book in the series. It's the book of Exodus. And it starts with a completely different tone because the children of Israel are still in Egypt and they've been there for about 400 years. But now instead of being kind of the elite in society, they are now the slaves. And they're suffering great oppression. Their life is bitter and exceedingly difficult. And this slavery of the children of Israel in Egypt actually becomes one of the great metaphors of the Bible. So you read through the rest of Scripture, it keeps using this picture of them in slavery as a picture of our spiritual slavery to sin. And so the children of Israel's political slavery becomes this image of spiritual slavery. And then God sends this hesitant, stuttering guy by the name of Moses with a message to Pharaoh. And what was the message? Let my people go. And Moses probably went and, and, and said that with, with a whole lot of fear and interpre, uh, in, 
intrepidation, I guess that's the word. I was going to say intimidation, but that's, <laughs> he was probably intimidated as well because he walks into Pharaoh's court and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, well, why should I do that? And Moses says, well, uh, because I can turn my, my shepherd's rod into a snake. And he threw his rod down and became a snake. And Pharaoh goes, that's nothing. My boys can do that. And they threw their rods down and became a snake. And you, re- you read the story and the story just kind of escalates. And God sends uh, these plagues on the Egyptians. And just coincidentally, how many plagues were there? There were 10 plagues. Interesting how that number comes up again. And we need to understand that these plagues were not just random disasters on the Egyptians, but it actually was a systematic defeat of the entire Egyptian religious system. And finally, after all these 10 plagues, Moses gets the word from Pharaoh, get out of here. You want to go, go. And God leads his children out of bondage. God leads his children out of slavery. God leads his people out of oppression. So when you get to the Ten Commandments, how does it start? With this huge touchstone. With this huge reminder And I think this is a huge clue to help us understand everything that follows. What does it say? I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. I've rescued you from bondage. I've rescued you from your bitterness. God says for generations you've experienced nothing but captivity and oppression and poverty and hopelessness, but now I've rescued you. You're free. And you've been living as slaves under the oppressive hand of your masters. Let me show you how to live as free people. As people who are no longer slaves. And instead of being restrictive and confining, God and his word talks again and again about how the law of God And living God's way actually brings joy and brings blessing and brings life. How God's word and his law is actually a way of freedom. But that's not how many of us understand God's commands. In fact, a lot of us don't want to get too close to God because we know that if we get close to him, he's going to restrict our freedom. He's going to tell us what we can't do. He's going to tell us how to live our lives. And frankly, we want to live our lives how we want to live our lives. We think freedom is doing whatever you want to do. We think freedom is the ability to just follow your hearts. Woody Allen summed up this attitude when he said this, the heart wants what it wants. And if you deny what you want, then you're betraying your heart and you'll never be happy. Well, that worked out pretty good for Woody Allen, didn't it? Following your hearts. But not everything you want to do, not everything your heart desire is going to lead to freedom. Friends, we're not free because we have the ability to choose. No, we're free when we choose well. 
It's wise choices that bring us to a place of freedom. Some choices are actually damaging. Some choices are destructive. Some choices lead into slavery for ourselves, for others. You think about addictions, whether it's addictions to drugs and alcohol or pornography or addictions to work or the choices you make, a marriage that comes crashing down because of an affair. Friends, our choices can actually lead to slavery, not to freedom. And so when it comes to understanding what real freedom is, I love what John Dixon says. He says this, freedom is the power to become what I'm made for. You really want to understand freedom? It's not just the ability to make a choice and do what you want. True freedom is the power to become who you were made to be. And if God is the creator who made all things good, remember the arc of the story. If God is the creator who made all things good, then maybe we need to pay attention about how he says we should live. You see, in the Ten Commandments, God is not trying to make you feel guilty. God is not trying to ruin your fun. His instructions are actually a path to freedom. Uh, They're like the owner's manual. God's shown us how things are supposed to work, how things are supposed to go together. I mean, how many know that you can save yourselves a whole lot of, of time and frustration and even some money if you would just take the time to read the owner's manual? <laughs> I see some elbows going there. Some of us, we're not so excited about the owner's manual. We, we just need to go out and do it. But I don't know about you, but I've got two jerry cans of fuel in my shed. One little jerry can is, is a can that, that is marked gasoline. The other little jerry can is one that I've marked mixed. And I need to be very careful when I go to fill up my lawnmower, which of those jerry cans I use. And when I go to fill up my gas whippersnipper, which of those jerry cans I use. Because the instruction manual tells me that if I put straight gas in my whippersnipper, I'm going to have problems. It's going to work better if it has mixed fuel. And same, don't put the mixed fuel in your lawnmower right? You got to follow the owner's manual. Things work better when you follow the design. Your life goes better when you follow the design. Your family goes better when you follow the design. Our society goes better when we follow the design. Freedom actually comes when you choose wisely. So God's commands are about freedom not bondage, not slavery. Secondly, when we start looking at the, the prologue to these 10 commandments, we understand that God's commands actually reveal his goodness or showcase his goodness. The commandments of God actually reveal who God is and what he's like. You see, you gotta keep in mind again, where the Israelites had been living for the past 400 years. Where had they been? They'd been in Egypt, right? So in so many ways, they were probably more Egyptian than anything because they had been immersed in Egyptian culture. They had been immersed in Egyptian spirituality. And in fact, they probably didn't really know that much about their God because, I mean, the Bible hadn't been written yet. They didn't have the word. 
And, and so it's, they, they had this kind of vague understanding of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that, that rest of that revelation hadn't come. And, and so what they were living in their, in their 24-7 world was this Egyptian environment. And so the Egyptian religion had about 1,500 gods. And they were gods of varying power and ability, gods of, uh, that were in competition with each other, that were often very flawed and often cruel. And Egyptian religion was really all about magic. It wasn't so much about worship, it was more about magic, using magic to appease and control the gods and to get them to do what, what you want them to do. So that's what the 10 plagues were really all about. Debunking the power of Egypt's gods and debunking the power of the Egyptians' magic to control the gods. So here's the question then for the Israelites because they've just been delivered out of this environment of Egyptian spirituality and they've been delivered by this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But who is this God? What is this God really like? Well, very different from the gods of their slavery. So what do the Ten Commandments reveal about God? Well, you kind of start going through them and, and they reveal some things about God. And I just kind of made a quick list of some of the things that it reveals. First commandment reveals that God is one God, not 1,500. And you can actually trust this one God for all you need. The second command reveals that God is a personal God who loves his people. The third command reveals a, a God who can't be controlled by magic. The fourth command reveals a God who'd give you a day off. I mean, listen, these people have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years and they're serving a God that will give them a day off that they actually shouldn't do any work. Now, what does that say about the God you're serving? You go down the rest of the, the commands, it's a God who values family and home life, a God who values human life, a God who values marriage and sexuality, a God who values order and justice and wants his people to be content. You see, our rules reflect our values. Our rules reflect what's important to us. Those of you that are parents or who have grandkids that are coming over to your house, you might have a rule, you know, don't throw stuff in the living room. Why? Because you've got some valuable stuff there you don't want to get broken. Uh, one of the rules we, we had in our house when our girls were, were small is that they couldn't fight with each other. We weren't going to allow any fighting because we valued peace in our home and we wanted them to learn respect. We valued that they would respect each other. Another thing that, that, that we had a rule about, at least I had a rule about, is no disrespect for mama. If you're gonna disrespect mama, you're gonna deal with me. <laughs> because I, I value my wife. I, I value the, my daughter's mother. And, and, you know, so our rules reflect our values. Our rules reflect what are important to us. And God in his commandments reveal what's important to him. And in doing so reveals who he is and what he's like. And it's God's revelation of himself, God's revelation and expression of his heart. And so when you look at what we see in the Ten Commandments and what they say about God, do you like what you see? Is, is he the kind of God that 
you want to know and serve? You see, God's rules showcase his goodness. You see, here's another myth that we need to bust if we're really going to understand the Ten Commandments. We don't obey God because we're afraid of being punished. We obey God because he is good and we love him. That's the motive for obedience. And I know a lot of people look at religion in general and Christianity in particular, and they say, you know what, if you really look at it and think about it, religion and Christianity is actually very selfish. Because the real reason you're trying to be a good person is because you don't want to go to hell. You're just trying to escape punishments. You just want to go to heaven. And you know what? That's selfish because your motivation for being a nice person, your motivation for being good and kind and all that, all that kind of stuff is, is, is really, it's all about you. It's selfish. And Richard Dawkins, an outspoken atheist, he put it like this, the only reason you try to be good is to gain God's approval and reward and avoid his disapproval and punishment. That's not morality. That's just sucking up. Let's call it for what it is. And you know what? If that's why you're trying to be good, I think I actually have to agree with Dawkins. If the only reason you're trying to obey the commands is because you're afraid you'll be punished or get in trouble or be humiliated, well, friends, if that's the reason, you've missed the points. The real reason that we obey is because we see that God is a good God. The reason we obey is because we love him. We see the love and the goodness and the beauty of the God who gives the commands. His commands are a revelation of himself, a revelation of his character, a revelation of his values, a revelation of his perfection and compassion, revelation of his character and his, and his holiness. And seeking to follow him and to follow his ways is not about escaping punishment, it's really about expressing our love. In fact, when Jesus shows up, you go to John chapter 14, what does he say? If you love me, obey my commandments. He's talking about motivation here. He doesn't say, you know, if you don't want to get in trouble, if you don't want to go to hell, obey my commandments. He doesn't even say, you know, if you want to be blessed, if you want to live a good life, obey my commandments. No, what does he say? If you love me, obey my commandments. The, the motivation for obedience is love. Of course, Jesus was just echoing what Moses had said in in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the fifth book in his, his series, he says in, in Deuteronomy eleven twenty two, be careful to obey all these commands. And, and friends, this is, if you're looking to memorize a verse during this series, this is the verse. I, I just love the way this is put in the New Living Translation. Be careful to obey all these commands that I'm giving you. Show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways and holding tightly to him. 
Show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways and holding tight. You want to really demonstrate your love to God? You want to hold him tight? Walk in his ways. Walk in his ways. Friends, God is not after obedience just for obedience sake. And he's certainly not after obedience that is based on threat or coercion. He's after a new kind of obedience that is rooted in a love for him, rooted in a delight in him. So it's not about slavery, it's about freedom. It's it's also about embracing God and his goodness. And there's one more thing that we've got to touch on before we really dive into looking at each of the commandments, but we need to understand that God's commandments are always rooted in grace. God's commandments are always rooted in grace. Now I know sometimes you say, well, the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament's all about grace. And you know what? That's wrong. Even the Old Testament is rooted in God's grace. You know, it's counterintuitive when we start talking about things like the law, but it's true. You see, human beings in general are very religious. We, we just kind of have a religious bent to our nature. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. Uh, people are religious, and, and the world religions basically all have this same understanding that there's a right way and a wrong way to live, and there's rules to keep and, and a lifestyle to follow. And... Coupled with that is always some form of an earn-your-way kind of teaching or theology. You got to earn your way. You got to perform. The typical way of thinking about it is that, you know, if we do enough good works, it'll counterbalance our bad works. It's kind of the image of the scale. You know, all of our our lives, we do bad things, we do good things. We just got to make sure that we do more good things than bad things so that we're a good person. But we never really know where we stand with some of that because we don't know how heavy some of our bad things are. We don't know how heavy some of our good things are. And that's the, the scale analogy for being a good person. And you know what? It's wrong. But I understand that if you start reading the Ten Commandments at verse 3, if you jump right into that first command and you don't understand this, what God is saying in, in verse 2, that's, that's what you end up with. You know, you've got to be good. You, you've got to be good so that God will love you. You've got to be good so that God will accept you. But what does verse 2 say? I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land. He rescued you. He, in fact, you could say, I am the Lord your God who already rescued you. I've already rescued you from the land of Egypt. I've already rescued you from the place of your slavery. You are no longer slaves. You're no longer slaves. And friends, you can't argue with the chronology. What came first, deliverance or commandments? What came first, the relationship or the roles? Did God say, hey, listen, if you obey these 10 things, I'll get you out of Egypt. 
No, what happened first? God took them out of Egypt. And you read through the story in the book of Exodus and you have to read through 19 chapters of God interacting with his people, of God leading them, of God taking care of them until they get to that place where God says, okay, listen, I'm gonna share some things about life and truth and goodness with you. It doesn't start with the rules. It starts with deliverance. And that one short sentence there before the 10 commandments even start would have reminded every Israelite what God had already done for them. Would have reminded them of the events of the Exodus. Would have reminded them of the 10 plagues and and that first Passover where, where the sacrificial lamb, that perfect lamb was slain so that they would be passed over from, from death. And, and again, symbolizing what Jesus Christ has done for us. They would have remembered the, the Red Sea, how, how the waters parted and how they went through, how God made a way for them. They would have remembered the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the supernatural provision of God in water and in food as they were in the deserts. And the reality is that God initiated relationship with his people before he even gave them any commands to obey. He was already their God. He had already brought them out of slavery. He had already expressed his love and his acceptance He had already redeemed them. And then when you get to the commandments that start in chapter 19, you've already had all of that story. Friends, it begins with relationship. So what the narrative of the story teaches is really simple. Deliverance always precedes obedience. Deliverance precedes obedience. It's not about you trying to be good enough so God will set you free. It's that God's gonna set you free so you can be good. It's rooted in his grace. And friends, that's something that the Bible teaches that is fundamentally opposite to every other world religion. Every religion in the world teaches that if you are good, if you obey, you might be accepted. The Bible reverses that and says, because of what Jesus has done for us, you are already accepted. Now you can obey. I'm gonna ask Kevin to come. And as he does, friends, you, you, You need to listen to this because you can't get this wrong this morning. This is really important. Some of you may be thinking that, you know what? When I'm good enough, God will accept me. Remember sharing with uh, another young adult when I was just a young person coming out of high school and he was a guy that would come and hang out in our youth group and liked him and was talking to him about Jesus and he just kept saying, well, you know what? I'm not good enough yet. I'm not good enough yet. I'm not good enough yet. And sometimes that's the understanding we have of what it means to be a Christian, that we've got to be good enough for God to accept us. But friends, it's not about being good enough. You know, that this whole image that we have of the scales where we've got to have enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds. And you never really know if you've been good enough. You know, at what point are you good enough? But we need to understand that salvation is a gift that you receive by God's grace. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. You don't have to be proving anything to God. You just got to receive Jesus. It's not about your must-dos. It's about Jesus already done. (laughs) 
And I'm accepted because of what Jesus has done for me. And then friends, I obey out of that because when I give my life to God, scriptures say that, that he actually sends his Holy Spirit into my life. He fills me with the Spirit of God that not only motivates me to, to, to want to serve him, but actually empowers me to be able to do it. It's not about trying to, to do what I'm supposed to do out of my own strength and my own ability. It's about doing it out of God's love and empowerment in my life through his spirits. And then there's some of us who already know that only Jesus can get us into heaven. But in spite of understanding that truth, there's just something about us that we're never quite sure where we stand with God. You know, if we have a good week, if we do what we're supposed to do, you know, we know God's probably pretty happy with us. But if we have one of those weeks where we blow it and we know that we've messed it up, we may be falling back into that sin that we continually struggle with or we've had this big blow up with our spouse or we know it's, you know, our issue. We know that God's looking down at us going, you're not a good person. And sometimes we walk into a worship service like this on a Sunday morning and we're feeling a little heavy because we know God's not impressed with us. I mean, how could God be impressed with me because of what I've done this week? You know, I gotta work really hard to, to get back in God's good books. I mean, I was like this. I was determined to be a good Christian. I wanted to do all the good Christian things. You know, real Christians read their Bible every day and real Christians, you know, care about the poor and real Christians do missions and real Christians give money and and adopt children and all these kind of things. I mean, the the whole checklist, right? Check, 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 check. If I do that, I'm going to be a good person. I do that, God's going to be impressed with me. Well, that is all good stuff. But are you doing it out of a heart of love for God empowered by his spirit or just because you're trying to impress Jesus or impress others or not get into trouble or not make God disappointed or ticked off or angry with you? Friends, we need to understand that God is not just after obedience. God's after a new kind of obedience, obedience that is out of love for him and obedience that's empowered by the spirit of him that's already living in us. The new obedience that God is after can never be created by threats of the law but only by wonders of his grace. Friends, it's not about what you have done, it's what Jesus has already done for you. Can we stand together? I want us to sing the song that we were singing earlier. I'm no longer a slave. Friends, you're no longer a slave, not because you've worked really hard to obey so God would let you go. You're no longer a slave because of what Jesus has already done for you. And we can live out of that freedom. Let's sing it together. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child 
of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. You know, just as we're singing that, I just kind of sense the Holy Spirit speak to me and say that there's some people here in the house this morning that, you know what, we talked about having a great summer. You haven't had a great summer. You've been wrestling with stuff and life has kind of gone sideways and, and there is a discouragement and a weariness and uh, a desperation. And maybe you feel like your faith is just hanging by a thread. Friends, God wants to say to you this morning, can you just look at me for a moment? Can you just look at me? And instead of looking at all the thou shalt nots and the, can you just look at me and understand that I'm good and that I love you? Not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but because you're my child, you're my creation. I love you because you're you. And you know, I was riding my bike these last few weeks and you're out in the forest and I noticed that a lot of the, the trees, their lower branches, especially some of the little ones, they're all kind of curled down like this. And it's really annoying when you're riding your bike because you keep getting them in your face and you're getting your eyes poked out and it's, it's not so good. But you know what it is? It's, it's when you're, the trees are dry, the, the lower branches actually, they, they just kind of curl like this. And, and some of you, that's a picture of your life. You just feel like, I feel like I'm dead and shriveled and curled up. And, and this morning God would say, you know what? If you would just focus your attention on my love and focus your attention on my goodness, I just want to kind of rain some of that moisture down into your soul and allow you just to experience the, the goodness and the grace and the, the, the refreshing of, of my love and my spirit that I want to give you so that you can change that posture. And again, friends, it's not because of something you do but it's because of who our God is and what he's done is expressed in himself and in Jesus. So Lord, I pray for my friends here this morning and Lord, I pray specifically for those who have, Lord, been feeling that they're maybe been more under the oppression of slavery than walking in the freedom of your love. And God, I pray this morning that you would rain down the refreshing rain of your grace on their hearts. Lord, that you would encourage them in their spirits. And Jesus, that they would know and know without a shadow of a doubt that despite of what they've done, despite how they feel, despite where they're at, you're still there. You still care. and you still love.
Bring the rain, Jesus. Bring the rain, Jesus. The rain of refreshing right now. Holy Spirit, come. God, I pray that you do a supernatural work in people's hearts and lives in this moment. Holy Spirit, come. Breathe your life. Breathe your goodness. Breathe your grace. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Our prayer room is open. Pastor Dallas is standing over here on the piano side. And if you're here this morning and God's been kind of talking to your heart, maybe about this whole I'm good enough thing or trying to be good enough thing or God's grace, or maybe you've just been feeling that you've been in a really dry place and you need to experience God's love afresh. Friends, when we're dismissed, can I just encourage you to make your way to our, our vertical lounge? It's, it's our prayer room. We're gonna have a team of people there with, that would just love to just pray with you and encourage you, maybe talk to you a little bit as well. Otherwise, our service is dismissed and we're gonna walk out of here. And friends, this week as we go, can you just walk in the overwhelming understanding of God's love and goodness in your life? Let's keep that first. Let's hold tight to him. God bless you.